The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for being here. And and more than anything, uh, from my heart, I just want to say thank you for being an intentional spirit. Um, It it means a lot, and it's more than just a title of a a radio show or or something that's trendy at the time. It it kind of uh, defines our whole life, if you will, Uh, because there are people who set goals. There's people that mean well. There's people that make vision boards and all those kind of things. But intentional spirits are the people, like people right now, instead of waiting for COVID to be over, they're looking at what new creative idea can I think of? Instead of waiting on things to change, they're saying, how can I change? So intentional spirits don't wait until the external circumstances support us with our dreams and our values and our missions. We just allow them to shape us into what we want to be. And I'm so excited today that that we have Jan Eliasberg and she talk about an intentional spirit. Well, I don't even want to take any more time because I want you to have the opportunity to hear all about her. She is amazing, literally amazing. And you know me, I save those words for special occasions for sure. But I also have my Facebook Live on. So if you want to ask a comment or anything for Jan, just come on through. We'd love to have you and love to have your input. So Jan, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, dear. (laughs) I am so happy to be here. I'm really thrilled. Well, I just read your bio, your your tremendous bio of of being a, a writer and a producer and a director of all these television shows. Many of them I grew up with or visited at some point in my life. And how in the world? I'm I'm just curious. In the in the beginning of your life, I know we really want to talk about Hannah's War, your phenomenal book. But how did all that happen for you? Well, I was listening to you talk about intentional spirits, and um, uh, that that really <laughs> struck a chord with me because I I think that that has always been there for me. Um, you know, I I remember when I was a little kid, and I wanted to. 
uh, tell stories. And, you know, the next thing I had organized everyone in the neighborhood and my brother and my sister into some play or another that I had written, um, usually with with me playing all the good parts, and <laughs> my brother and sister very mad at me because they were playing the second spear person to the left. But, you know, it was, it was in there from the very, very beginning. And, um, you know, the, the path that I chose to be a director was... Um, was probably not the easiest at the time that I did. Um, it wasn't generally something that women did. It was very much a male-dominated field. Um, but my desire to tell stories in that form, you know, not 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 stories isolating people, but stories that brought people together and connected people and that were healing, um, was so powerful that I just overcame whatever obstacles were put in my way. Um, and I used to say every time, every time a door closes in your face, there's a window opening behind you. And I'd climb through the window. And if I couldn't get there, I'd build a ladder and climb through it, uh, you know, that way. Um, so, um so yes, it has very much to do, I think, with having a a passion and a vision that was larger than myself. And with all the years that you've been a writer, and, and don't you also uh, teach people um, how to become writers? And I mean, imagine uh, somebody with I, your I, tremendous I did, background that you, you are a teacher archetype in there somewhere, right? Yes, um, I taught at uh, uh, NYU Film School. Um, I've also, I work with a number of different programs that work with um, particularly women, uh, young young women who are from uh, challenging backgrounds um, because the the idea of understanding that you have a story to tell really is a way of making women particularly, but anybody, feel that they have meaning and importance in the world. And uh, I can't think of a gift more important than that, than to say to some young girl who, you know, has had only challenges in her life, what's your story? You have a story to tell, and and I want to help you find it. And that's that's meaningful. People need to hear about your experience. It, it's our healer, isn't it? I mean, the art of it, storytelling. It really heals us and it transcends us and it it, it ignites the, the visionary. I know that, you know, people have asked me through the years and I'm coming up on um, amazingly uh, 20, 33 years of sobriety in September and and people will say, are you anonymous? And I go, oh, no, I earned my story. Uh, no, I have too much to share about all that. No, I wouldn't want to be quiet about it at all. And because I'm with you, I think that it's so important because, you know, a lot of times leaders and teachers and, and speakers, you know, they quote other people. They they tell the stories of other people, but there's something that's transcendent when 
when we tell our own stories. You're you're so spot on about that. And with that, um, Jim, what do you think? Is it just people? Is there any core reason or core reasons that people don't feel like they they're enough to tell their story or that it would matter? Or I'm sure it's several things, but have you noticed a a common thread of of that people they have all these gifts, but they they almost want to remain invisible, you know, at times. Yes, I think that's a great question. I mean, fear is a very powerful uh, killer of art. Um, people are afraid that they don't have anything to say, or that what they have to say is not meaningful um and not important and um also i will say and you know you you probably have recognized already that i'm i'm a feminist um i like good strong women um women often feel that their stories are not important because women have often been erased from history i mean really extraordinary women like like the woman who inspired Hannah's War, but you know that I, I've seen women feel that stories that are told in the movies are always, they always feature men. And not surprisingly, when you're going and consuming movies and television and uh, books that are from a male viewpoint, it's um, sometimes difficult to recognize that your story is just as important um, and and possibly even more important because those are the stories that are not being told. Um, so I think that that's uh, one one thing, uh, one very important thing is what are the stories that we're consuming as a as a as a as a culture and, and particularly as a capitalist culture you know there are sort of templates about stories that you go out and you conquer and you fight and you overcome and you kill right you know you go to war you go to battle uh, those are those are those greek stories that we all grew up on and there's a different point of view um women did not necessarily go out and do that. Some did, Joan of Arc did, but um, but there's a room for a female gaze in the world, and uh, that's that's a place that I kind of jumped in and happily occupy. And I, I wanted to, you know, ask you that because of um, I know that you know with the listeners that are either listening now or they're tuning in later. Uh, there's so many um, great difference makers out there in the world that they're they're making up inner stories to themselves. Um, I know one of mine was, you know, um, well, somebody's already said that. Uh, well, somebody's already done that. Well, somebody's there already wrote that TV show or somebody's already. But it's like it's like so what Jan and I are calling you to to think about today is that you haven't, therefore it hasn't happened. <laughs> because at the level that you would share as a listener um, out there that are tuning in, you know, the level that you would share, the level that you would participate, what would come from your heart 
would reach people that other otherwise we may not be able to reach. So I thank you, Jan, for that. And um, because I think it's so important, it is our time. And uh, we want to urge all of you that are in the closet um, and, and waiting on something else to come along, you might be that something else. And so we're calling that forth today. Well, speaking of calling forth, I want us to get into your book, Hannah's War. And those of you listening, go to Jan Eliasberg, E-L-I-A-S-B-E-R-G.com. Go to her website and follow us right now. Connect with her. But let's talk about Hannah's War. What is the story behind that? Because I know it is exciting. <laughs> okay. Um, so I will set the stage for you. Um, <laughs> I was working on another screenplay, and I often um, I often do work in historical settings because I find women in history whose stories have been uh, neglected or erased. Um, and I was writing a screenplay about the women air service pilots in World War II, who were these extraordinary women who flew planes, trained in the military, flew better than most most of the men, um, died in 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 the line of duty and did not get any military benefits, um, would were not being were not allowed to be buried in a military funeral, their families didn't get benefits and so I was in the library doing research. I love the library. It's my happy place, the New York Public Library. And they have a room that is filled with microfiche of all of the newspapers and magazines in the world. And I just got it in my head that I wanted to see how the New York Times wrote about the bombing of Hiroshima, which was the end of the, the official end of World War II. And so I called up that that page, and there was a huge, as you'd expect, enormous headline, you know, so-and-so many killed, Truman vows, reign of ruin. But the fascinating thing was that this project to develop the atomic bomb was developed entirely in secret. It was the Manhattan Project. And even scientists who were working on the bomb itself didn't know what they were working on. They were told they were working on submarines or, you know, something else. So here was the New York Times with the obligation to explain how this had come about. And I read this paragraph. It said the key component that allowed the Allies to develop the bomb was brought to us by a female, I'm doing air quotes here, non-Aryan physicist. Now, I sat up in my chair. I practically hit my head. I thought, well, I know that non-Aryan means Jewish, but it's interesting the New York Times couldn't say Jewish uh, at that time. But I also thought a woman a female physicist in the 40s, I mean, this is 1945. Who is this woman? How is it possible I haven't heard of her? 
there was no name in the article. She was just a female non-Aryan physicist. So there was a mystery there, and I love mysteries. And I knew that she had a story. I just knew it right then and there. And it set me on a path of, of 10 years of research, um, not just to find her. Uh, I did, in fact, find her. She was a a Jewish-Austrian physicist working at the highest levels of research in Berlin. Um, as the Nazis were rising to power, all of her colleagues said, don't worry, don't worry, you know, they can't touch you, we'll protect you. Um, and then the day Austria was annexed, all of a sudden, the Nazis marched into the institute it's like marching into a university if they, they like marched into Harvard and said, this is no longer uh, an institute. This is now a branch of the military. And all the research you've been doing is only going to be focused on weapons. Oh, and she had six hours to flee. And all of the people who had said, don't worry, don't worry, well, one of them even told the Gestapo where she was. So... She had six hours to leave the country or or go to the camps, and she managed to escape to Sweden, and she had a partner that she'd been working with for many, many, many years, a man, a German, named Otto Hahn, and they were on the verge of discovering nuclear fission. Now, what that is for people who think science is sort of mysterious, it's really not. I did really badly in all my science classes, but I was absolutely fascinated by this stuff. When you split the atom, if you can imagine you're bombarding this thing that is held together really, really, really tightly, and if you bombard it in just the right way, it splits apart. And it releases so much energy, I mean, energy like you couldn't even imagine, that energy is called atomic energy. And of course, she saw this as a force for good. You know, there were miners, coal miners dying of lung disease to try to get energy. This was clean energy, didn't involve death. You know, I mean, it, it, opened the, it opened the possibility of, you know, a thousand different great things. But of course, like Pandora's box, it had a little bit of a, a potential evil side, and that was the atomic bomb. And so she and her partner were on the verge of splitting the atom but they hadn't done it yet. She fled to Sweden, and her partner could not work without her. And so he visited her in secret, and they devised experiments. He would go back to Germany, and he would do them, and then he would send the results to her on postcards via courier. And she was the one who would look at the results of the experiments and analyze them and say what happened. So he sent her this one experiment, and she was very puzzled by it. It, it seemed almost impossible. And she was, I love this, because it's like a scene in a movie. She was, she was skiing, you know, snow skiing in Sweden. And she stopped, and she took her ski pole, and she started writing equations in the snow. 
and she said, I know what happened. We just split the atom. So that there became just the fact that she, you know, the, the excitement, the, 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 the improbable possibility of her coming on that when she had to flee, that all was a, a, an amazing story in and of itself. But by the time I had done all this research, I was also finding out about Los Alamos, about the Americans, um, uh, um, Manhattan Project and how that came about. And I started thinking, here we have a woman who was had the best moral compass of anybody I, I can imagine. And she did know the power of her discovery. But then the military came in and they took it away from her, essentially. And I thought, well, if that happened in Germany, what happened? What 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 would happen if I put her at Los Alamos? And she sees the same thing happening again, but in a much more subtle way, because everybody at Los Alamos was engaged in making the bomb because they were certain, 100% certain, that Hitler was seconds away from getting it first. And all of those scientists there were, most of them were Jewish, many of them were Eastern European or German immigrants who had family back in Germany in the camps. And so they had a very emotional and passionate reason to be working on this weapon to the extent that they didn't quite face exactly what it was that they were building until it was tested for the first time. And all of a sudden, they realized this weapon of mass destruction had been unleashed and they had created it. And so just that whole idea of a scientist, and I, I very much identified a scientist is like an artist, and you yes. are so passionate about what you're discovering that you're not really thinking about what's going to happen when it gets unleashed into the world. And meanwhile, as at Los Alamos, there were all kinds of military uh, generals, you know, kind of manipulating the scientists and getting them to do what they wanted because they were on a timetable. They wanted that bomb by a certain time. And so just that all that, um, the, 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 the discoveries that I was making through all of that research, uh, I just felt like this is, this is the stuff of a great book. And at first I thought, I might write it as a screenplay because, of course, I am a director and, you know, that was my world. Um, but I felt like all the layers of the characters and the way I set the story in motion, which was uh, a spy story, an espionage thriller, where this woman is working at Los Alamos in the inner circle and a young military investigator comes to look for a spy because they were very paranoid. Everyone thought there were spies at Los Alamos. And he begins to suspect her um, for very good reason 
because it turns out that she is, in fact, sending certain things out of the country that she should not be sending. And so that gave me my engine for the story. Um, and so it is a, a espionage thriller um, with a wonderful romance or two even uh, at the center. And then in the background, there are all of these fascinating questions about, about you know, the morality, what science owes to the world. If you, you know, what what is your obligation to heal the world, particularly when you have brought into the world something so dangerous? Um, the difference between some of the male scientists at Los Alamos who were a little bit blind to what they were doing and this woman who clearly was not blind and felt an obligation to make sure that her work was going to be used in the best possible way. Um, so what I ended up with was a kind of a, a well, I shouldn't say it, but everyone else has said it, a, a, a page-turning thriller uh, that just, you know, you can't put down um, until you until you get to that last page. So, um, yeah, that's that's about 15 years of work uh, in in my five minutes. So, right, um, right, and I, and you were going to have 30 more, you know, after we have our after we have our break because this is okay. absolutely fascinating, and I love that all this is emerging forward now. You know, that these stories and these secrets about who really helped us get to the moon. And, you know, it's so many women. And, and it's unfathomable to me that they didn't even say her name. Like she really yes. wasn't human. Like she was more robotic. Yeah. It's just, and somehow her spirit longed for you to find her, right? I mean, that's just so mystical to me. <laughs> That, that's how it felt. It felt like yeah, this woman. Of course, like she was pages of that you newspaper. Know, do you know when she died? When she actually died? Um, this woman? She uh, lived for quite a long time. She lived into her 90s. Um, oh, and I will she say found that you. A, she found you. That's so incredible. She that, did. She that, found me. She did. I mean, all the things you could find in the library, right? <laughs> and that this is, yes. this was, I, I, oh gosh, this is so incredible. I want to thank all of you for tuning in uh, to the Intentional Spirit. We're talking to Jan Eliasberg. You can go to janeliasberg.com and read her bio also. And you'll identify with so many shows and everything that she was the writer for or producer or director. Um, she's all that and even more than a, a, a slice of vegan cheese is what I like to say. <laughs> but, um, and uh, we'll be right back after this short break, okay? Stay tuned in with us. This is fascinating. I'll be here. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit with Rev. Temple Hayes. Welcome back, everyone. And oh my gosh, I am just spellbound today as we are having Jan Eliasberg. And you can go to her website, janeliasberg.com. And wow, is she unraveling a so necessary truth to heal this planet, I'm telling you. In her book, her new book, Hannah's War, and how, oh my gosh, how she discovered this woman by being in a library 15 years ago. And what a story. So, so Jam, we were talking during break, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to say it one more time because it deserves to be said several times. Her colleague, Hannah's colleague that she collaborated with all those years, I heard you say, she got a Nobel, he got a Nobel Peace Prize, and she wasn't even included in anything? Yes. So here's the story. Uh, those who understand, you know, who know a lot about science, know the name Otto Hahn, H-A-H-N. Um, he and Lisa Meitner collaborated for 25 years at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin. Now, as they were discovering, getting closer to splitting the atom, the Nazis were in power. This was 1938. So um, her name could not go on the published papers because she was Jewish. And, you know, the Nazis at that time were discrediting any science that had to do with Jews. It would have automatically discredited their work if her name had been on the papers. So I'm willing to be gracious about that and say, well, perhaps that is a, a, a valid reason for you know why her name wasn't on those papers. But once she fled and they continued to work together, now remember I said earlier, he couldn't work without her. Um, he was the one who came to visit her secretly and begged her to continue doing these experiments and to help him decipher the experiments. So, you know, he was completely dependent on her as a physicist. He was a chemist. She was a physicist and um, radiographic mathematician. And um, so when they split the atom, she was the one who recognized what had happened. Um, and he put it in a paper, which was published without her name. Now, you know, there there's politics in everything, and there is certainly politics in science. Sure. Um, he he was he was made the head of the institute. He stayed in Germany. He wasn't Jewish, so he was under no, you know, he had nothing to fear. Um, she was Jewish. She had everything to fear. And she was also a woman. And so after the war in 1945, the Nobel Committee was, was awarding their prizes. And they decided to award the prize for the discovery of nuclear fission to Otto Hahn and his male assistant in Germany. Now, you know 
just from reading the published articles, and many, many, many scientists have said this. This is not just me. There were 50 scientists who begged the Nobel Committee to award the prize to her as well. Because so they it did come up. Was... There were, she did have some allies, right, at that time. She, she, she did, and she's had more allies since because, you know, history, now that we've sort of uncovered her, um, like the Hidden Figures women, yeah. people have, have come to see what an important part she played in this discovery. But at that time, you know, being a woman scientist was, was, but people didn't even think women should be scientists. You know, she gave her first lecture and as a prank, the newspaper said that she was giving her lecture in cosmetic physics and she was giving her lecture in cosmic physics, not cosmetic physics, but they thought that was very funny. Um, you know, and it was that kind of thing that she had sort of endured all her life. Um, and so he was in, in Sweden to accept the prize. Um, she was in the audience. I read her diaries. And she said, when, she wrote, when Otto came up and he accepted the prize, she said, I am so hurt and disappointed that he didn't even mention my name. So we're not just talking about a woman who didn't get the prize she deserved. We're talking about a man who convinced himself that she didn't play any importance at all in the work and believed or, you know, fooled himself. I don't know. We don't know what went on in his mind. But he believed that, you know, somehow he was responsible for the entire thing. So, and, and you know, the, the, um, the Nobel Prize Committee has definitely done things like this since. Uh, I think people know uh, Rosalind Franklin, who was the scientist who did the photographs of the um, double helix, the structure of DNA. And in that case, uh, a male colleague took the photographs off her desk without asking and brought them to uh, uh, Francis Crick and James Watson, who were working on the same thing. And lo and behold, they discovered the structure of DNA, the double helix, and got the Nobel Prize for it and never mentioned the fact that they had seen this photograph by Rosalind Franklin, a woman, that very clearly showed the structure of the, of the double helix. So, you know, Lisa Meitner's is not the first story like this, and it's probably not the last, but it yeah. is egregious that she has not been recognized posthumously for her discovery. And I, you know, I wrote the book in part to... to at least place in people's consciousness that this woman deserves real recognition, not just, you know, people now kind of going, oh, you know, she was really important. But actually, you know, we, we all think that, that prizes are, you know, maybe they're just sort of honors or whatever. But the Nobel Prize is worth millions of dollars 
your name becomes, you know, an advertisement, you are given research grants, you are, I mean, scientists work their entire lives to win a Nobel Prize. That's the highest honor you could possibly get. And the idea that she was denied that honor is important because women look at, you know, the list of Nobel Prize winners and they say, well, look, you know, there's only like one woman, there's Madame Curie, you yeah. know, and they, 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 think, they, well, they avoid fine. us. Uh, it's avoided. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and, it's just. And then they think, well, why should I go into science? Because obviously no women have succeeded. Um, and and so this is an important story to tell, I think, on many, many, many levels. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it opens so many, many uh, different doors for sure. It's just it, and it's almost like, well, do these people not believe in karma? I mean, how can you do that? You know, how can you publicly accept that this is all about you when you know it's anything but that? That's uh, it, it's so shocking. And yet we're seeing it more and more all the time. And we're living in this time now. You know, this is an exciting time to be alive that all these untruths are coming to the surface. I just... Um, just want to take a moment and say thank you for your bravery and your courage and your dedication for all these years of keeping this story going and gathering it and and combining it so that you can bring this to the forefront. And I I do get the feeling there's going to because of that you're trailblazing this. I think there's going to be more coming at you. <laughs> that's the sense. Well, thank I you. You know, I mean, that's the sense really... I get because um, you have so much passion about it and you have the, the energy and you have the status uh, to make this happen. So I just uh, just hold that empowerment for you because it's so necessary. It can change the whole dynamic, like you said, of, of more and more people receiving the Nobel Peace Prize that are probably overlooked all the time, as you said, you know. Yes. So very, it's very it's bigger. Better. It's her, and um, you know what are the what are the long term Hannah awards going to be? <laughs> That's what I'm. <laughs> my gosh, what a story! My the listeners are going. Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating, and you know just absolutely in, incredible. We had one listener say, "Did Los Alamos take this information from Han, or discover this with their own research?" Um, they took the information, um, I mean, once it got out that they had done this, the information was actually out in the world. Um, and um, then, you know, I, I say in the book, and it's certainly true, you know, it's a long way between splitting the atom and creating the nuclear bomb. It's it's not as if you split the atom and then the next day, you know, you've got because the nuclear bomb was a feat of engineering and, you know, and, and, and they had this so much that they had to figure out. So, you know, splitting the atom was the key uh, in terms of the um, theoretical part, but the practical part was really the, you know, the, the most difficult time-consuming. And that's really what happened at, at Los Alamos was that practical part. Um, and I get into that a lot in the book because 
what I found was that actually what was happening at Los Alamos was as fascinating, as fascinating or more fascinating than Lisa Meitner's story. Um, it was a, it was a, if you can imagine, you know, the most brilliant minds in the world up on the highest mesa in New Mexico in this kind of weird cross between a summer camp and a concentration camp. I mean, it was, it was, you know, the, the laboratory was, it wasn't, it wasn't called a laboratory. It was called Site Y because it was so secret. Nobody would say what they were doing there. They surrounded the scientists with sort of a, a concertina wire fences, and then they had guards, security guards stationed. And as they got more and more afraid that there were spies, the security got higher and higher. And scientists would, you know, disappear um, because they were suspected of spying. Um, and so all of that was being balanced with this kind of giddiness that the scientists were collaborating with the best minds in the world. Who wouldn't want that? Um, but they were also having these wild parties. I mean, it was New Mexico. They were going skiing in the morning before work. They were partying at night with punch that was um, actually, it was actually filled with 200 proof lab alcohol. Oh so they gosh. were, so they were, you know, they were, they were working like crazy during the day and then partying like fiends at night. And what a fascinating environment for, for, for discovery. We've never created anything like that since. Um, and, and maybe never will. Um, but it took that kind of, um, determination and that kind of collaboration to bring, you know, to bring this weapon into being. And I want to stress, I think it's very important that people understand, you know, that, that the atomic bomb, it, the, the scientists who were there, were working because they really felt that this was going to fall into Hitler's hands and they had if they were rescuing the world by getting it first because we know Hitler had no compunction about bombing you know London um and 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 he would have had no compunction about dropping the atomic bomb and so even though history tells us that that the Germans didn't get the bomb. Every, no, there was no there was no communication, so everybody in America in, in the Manhattan Project were working day and night because they were terrified that that the people in Germany, where this discovery had happened of splitting the atom, were just seconds away from getting the bomb, and the only thing that they could put in the way of Germany dropping the bomb was having it first. That was the only, you know, um, deterrent that that they had. 
So even though now we think of the bomb as being a, a weapon of mass destruction, which it certainly is, I, I just want to say at the time the scientists had very good reasons for doing what they were doing. It was not as if they were just, you know, there for the fun of it or, or there because they, you know, wanted to create this terrible weapon. Not at all. They they were there because they wanted to do their duty and try to save the world. It's just a fascinating story, Jan. It just really, really is. I feel so fortunate that you've... Uh, you know, taking the time that you were on our show today. You're right. I mean, Thank girl, you are, young lady, you are an intentional spirit all the way over <laughs> the top. My gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You Thank know, the you. other thing, though, that I, that I for, you know, as I said earlier, I, I, I celebrate the fact that her spirit found you, you know, like she found the somebody identified with a formula on the ice Snow skiing, your formula found you of her in the library, and that's pretty fascinating. But um, having said that, um, it's impressive that that she lived the age that she did, and and she didn't die of a broken heart. I mean, because it's like it's like you and I are saying, and I don't know if we can even clearly say it. We're talking about life's work here. You know, we're talking about someone that dedicated their life like she did, you know, to do this work and to be so left out. Um, that that's You wonder what her process was that she, she just kept going. And um, I, how, what was the level of her participation in society, you know, past those times? Well, you know, first of all, she was, writing equations under, you know, in bed at night by flashlight when she was eight. So clearly she was, she was a genius. She was called to this work. Um, and she also had to push really hard, you know, each step of the way because women were not admitted to graduate school you know, so she convinced Max Planck to, you know, take her under his wing because he could recognize that she was exceptional. And then when she got to Kaiser Wilhelm, you know, they put her, she was the only woman there, they put her in a lab in the basement, um, literally in the workshop where the janitors kept their mops and cleaning supplies. That was her lab. And all the other scientists, the male scientists, had these beautiful labs with windows, you know, on the first floor with tea and coffee, you know, brought to them. And she was slaving away, um, which, you know, comes up, comes up in my book because, because they, they called her a Jewish slave and they, they figured out what they could sort of take from her experiments and how they could use her. Um, but even that didn't deter her because she loved her work. Now, I think that she had a real dilemma because when she had to leave Germany, and I, I can see this from her letters and her diary, she, 
one of the reasons she stayed for as long as she did, even though it was very dangerous, is that she did not think she would ever find another place where she could work in the way she was working to have this kind of collaboration. And so she stayed in Germany in part because she had finally found a place where she was able to do what she loved. She had a collaboration which was like a love affair, like a marriage. Um, It's, you know, when you work with someone for 25 years, you're married for all intents and purposes. And, you know, when she left, she definitely always did feel that that her life had been in Germany and that she never found, you know, the that kind of situation again. But I will tell you that this woman, she reminds me of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's oh, yes. yeah. smart and witty, and after the war, she was introduced at a press luncheon that Eleanor Roosevelt gave in her honor and President Truman, you know, was supposed to introduce her and she was sitting at the, you know, at the head of the table and it's she's teeny tiny. I mean, she looks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, she's about five two and delicate and bird boned with these big eyes. And Truman kind of comes up there and he says, so, young lady, you're the girl who got us into this atomic mess. And I just imagine her, you know, trying not to roll her eyes because this is the president of the United States, you know, giving her this completely backhanded compliment and and, and completely patronizing her. But, you know, this is she knew what she was in for. You know, she said, she said, I think it was in her, in a letter, uh, she said, you know, when you are known as the woman the chemistry department did not want to hire, you become a feminist and you remain one. And she used the word feminist, and this was in, you know, the early 30s. So I don't want to excuse what happened to her because it is tragic, but she was made of really strong, strong stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and a, you know, a call out to, to many of you listening is, is to, to remember what, what some people have endured and what they were willing to go for, for what they really believe in. And it, it just doesn't seem like we have that many complications. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> our first world country kind of things we have going on. Um, and, and so let that be an inspiration, I guess, is what I'm I'm wanting to articulate. Let this be an inspiration. But I tell you, um, Jan, you're an inspiration. I um, This is just incredible, um, the dedication and the story. And I, I'm knowing, I'm going to, I already see myself in the theater with a bunch of friends having... Um, uh-huh some kind of um, non-carb uh, popcorn and watching Hannah's War. <laughs> well, do you see who's casting it? I'm just curious. Who's playing Hannah? Oh, wow. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a big one there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I need to, I need to sit with that one a minute. 
Um, okay. It. Wow. Um, are we talking Jolie? Well, you know, sometimes it's fun to cast from the past, you know. Yes. Um, yes. So, um, you know, I would, I would see somebody perhaps like Catherine Hepburn when she was very, when she was young. Oh yeah, um, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, Betty Davis was a little bit sharp, um, and 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 Hannah's not that. She's very smart, but she's also careful and and guarded and um, and very sexy. Actually, I mean, you know, when she gets into this interrogation, she's being interrogated quite mercilessly, and she realizes that the best way she can avoid the interrogation and revealing these secrets she's keeping is to turn the tables and so she starts doing detective work on her interrogator and she begins to discover secrets about him that he has been hiding for a long time so it has to be somebody incredibly smart willing to flirt a little bit but not not ever be sort of cutesy and girlish. Maybe Lauren Bacall. Yeah, How's there that? you go. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Absolutely, yeah, I can. It's I finding can see that, that perfect balance, like you're saying. Yeah, it's all of that. It's the intelligence, the education, the brilliance, uh, the the the. The beauty, which is not, it's not beauty that's just superficial. It's beauty because of who she is inside. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.